Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. All right, so let's get on with um, um, with this, because Chris has been talking about backbone of Western Christianity, and uh, you might say, why do we need to know all that stuff? Because that's what Western Christianity is talking about, and if we're going to be icebreakers, we've not only got to know this exists, but we've got to have some idea um, how we legitimately challenge the thinking, because I actually do think that the thinking is destructive to the gospel, okay? Um, so we're going to talk about a few, few things tonight. Now, one of the other things that, that is interesting is, um, uh, well, two things really. One is that, um, you know, which, which, which can you do the quickest? Um, demolishing something or building something? Okay, so, so building is a long process and it's quite a laborious process because it's brick on brick. You know, it's line on line, it's precept on precept. So we are trying to, 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 as well as challenging some thinking, rebuild into into your uh, perception, fresh understandings, and take time to say why we need to think those things and why we believe those things. Um, the, uh, the other thing that I wanted to say is that um, uh, repetition is, is um, a very important process in, in learning because we don't absorb sometimes as quickly as we flatter ourselves that we think we do. <clears throat> so I make no apologies if we kind of keep touching things and reiterating things um, because they have to become something of habit. So they come out of your spirit and whether you agree with them or not, it is not for me to decide. That's for you to decide, but at least you can pull them up in the context of the debate so that you know what we're, um, what we're actually uh, <clears throat> what we're talking about. <clears throat> So, um, I, I mentioned last week something out of what Chris had said that, that I wanted to just touch some scripture and also give you some, some perceptions on because it does tie into it's some biblical issues of, of why this in the backbone of, of Western Christianity, which is the dominant theory, substitutionary penal atonement, the whole idea that... Um, that, that um, God must be appeased, and in order for God to be appeased, somebody's got to pay, somebody's got to get it. It's a great idea, it's a wonderful theory, and it, it formed the backbone of my Christianity for, for most, of my, most of my life. Um, I can honestly say now, at this point, at 60 years of age, and um, you know, having been in these environments, from three days after being born, so I'm not wet behind the ears, uh, being in ministry for a long time in a lot of things, I do not believe that penal substitutionary atonement is the correct understanding of what Jesus came to do or what God was doing in Christ. Now, don't be threatened by that because if you still embrace that, we, we, not, we don't cease to be friends just because of that. For goodness sake, we are... We're in, a, we're in a, a realm of maturity where 
where it puts on the table what we can talk about. So, uh, but if you want my personal conclusion, I, 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 don't, I can't uphold that theory. And of course, that leads to <coughs> a lot of other consequences that you have to then say, but if that's not how the thing works, how does it work, and what about this, and what about that? And we'll, we'll address a couple of those things <coughs> tonight as we go along. Um, and um, I don't know how good a job we'll do with this, but I'll just tell you what, what's on my heart, and then we'll see what, <coughs> what that turns out to be. Um, <coughs> in 1 Corinthians 15, um, when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he makes a statement that is, if you've got a church background, you would, you would have to call it creedal. It was like a, it's like a creed. It's like a very early creed. A, a creed is a, is a confession of belief, okay? That you have come to a confession of where your faith is rooted. Um, <clears throat> now, what is interesting about what Paul writes is, he's writing this, somewhere around 50, 55 AD. Um, depending which, which timeline you follow, um, he is potentially and probably writing this either at, at best at the same time as or potentially before the Gospels were written. Okay? So he's not taking his indication for this from the Gospels. Um, and he is, obviously, if we're talking about 50 to 55 AD, and, um, uh, you know, Jesus being crucified somewhere between 30 and 33 AD, depending on how you work the calendar, then in terms of, um, in terms of, of qualifying historic document, this actually... Is, is, has a very high position because it's really close to the events that it talks about. Um, <clears throat> so, so the, for many reasons surrounding that, there is, there is, there is grounds to authenticate this um, as a reliable piece of, of understanding of what was important to be said at that time that rooted out of their understanding of what Jesus did. And the whole point of this is, you know, we have developed as Western Christians with non-Eastern influence, uh, very heavily Greek-influenced, a perception of what we think these things mean that happened in an Eastern context um, in a culture that we are not familiar with and at a time that we don't relate to the same process of history. So do you understand how we can, we, we, with all the best intentions, can begin to interpret uh, these things into a model that puts a wrong emphasis on certain things because we, we don't have it in context. So, uh, I said that to, to preclude reading uh, a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Here's what Paul says. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So he's already been preaching this. Which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Remember, Paul's really planted and, and is the strong influence in the church in Corinth. 
By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. <clears throat> now, of course, <clears throat> one of the questions could be, where did he receive it from? And why did he believe it was of primary importance? Well, we've already determined Paul didn't get it by reading the Gospels and... Okay, uh, And I would propose to you, nor did he get it from the, and I'll say this very nicely, um, but I, I need to make it as an emphasis, the bigwigs in Jerusalem. Because Paul says in Galatians, which is his, potentially his first book, some say Thessalonians, I like to argue for Galatians. Paul says in there that when he had this encounter um, with with the Christ, with, with, with Jesus as a revealed by the Father and revealing the Father. It's interesting because Paul says, I went down to Arabia, right? I went down to Arabia. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia. And you think, well, and then he came back to Damascus, which of course is in Syria. So why would he, with this revelation, take off for Arabia and back to Syria before he ever came back and talked to anybody in Jerusalem. I propose to you with Paul's background and religious upbringing and Jew Jewishness, he wanted to get away from that influence so that as he processed this revelation of the gospel, it was not an amended version of the truth that he had learned in Judaism. So you can read that for yourself in Galatians. He says, afterwards, I went down to Jerusalem, but they added nothing to my gospel. In other words, they couldn't put anything before him that contended with what he had defined was the flow of the gospel. Okay, does that make sense? So, um, in that historic understanding, he says, what I received, I believe what he means is what I received Direct from the Lord, a revelation of who Jesus is and the Abba, the Father of Jesus, um, is what I passed on to you because I believe that's got primary importance and everything else must submit itself to a lens of this revelation. And this is what he said, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So when he said according to the scriptures, what did he mean? You see, the issue is we read words like Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then start flipping through the New Testament, finding all our favorite New Testament scriptures, and, and you know, John 3:16, which wasn't written, that was going to be written. Uh, let me see, 50, another 40, 40 years, 40 to 45 years later is when John penned for God's soul of the world and uh, all his great statements that we have incorporated in, into the gospel. So when Paul says according to the scriptures, we have to wrestle with that because, because this thinking, I haven't written anything yet, this thinking makes you think he's talking about this. Because many people will say that's what the scripture is really teaching. 
So whatever Paul was talking about, that he said, this gospel I preach to you, that I receive, that it's by this gospel you are saved, probably wasn't the same gospel that you and I may have some of us been saved by. Now, am I questioning whether we were saved? No, I think absolutely. Of course you can get saved from the, by this. If I don't care if it brings you to, to inviting Christ, in, in, or you, you accepting the invitation into Christ's life, which is the way I like to put it now, I really, you know, if, if that gets us there, it's fine. So this is not an argument about people can only find Jesus one way. Because if it is, we are, we are propagating the same mistake that we think this does. Now that gospel says you can only do it this way. And if you don't do it that way, you know as well as I do, the consequences, conscious, eternal torment forever and forever and forever uh, by a loving God who will punish you infinitely for errors that you make finitely, or even worse, that he would punish you for all eternity just because you won't acknowledge who he is. Now, you know, there are plenty of people in this city who don't want to acknowledge who I am, but I would never dream of imposing upon them conscious eternal torment forever, so I can't think the Father in heaven would behave that way. But this theory doing lots of flipping here. This theory, this theory says that's it. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why some of that is a problem in a moment. So we have the question. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. Now, one of the things Paul is saying that's become a, a, um, a strong statement because of when this was written and how close to the events, the fact that Paul says these three things, Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead, gives a lot of weight to the possibility of that being true, which of course we know it is true, and then he goes on to talk about uh, all those who had witnessed and seen that. So according to which scriptures? Now, before we address that question, how we determine this, which scriptures, <clears throat> will depend on at least two things. There may be more, but let me just suggest two things that, 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 that determining what he means depends on. The first one is this, whether we are trying to justify an existing theory. So if we're trying to justify an existing theory, and we read Paul's words, we are going to interpret everything we read, hold in New Testament to support the theory that we already hold, which for most of us would be this, okay? So as you read scriptures, you'll think, well, it's definitely that. It has to be that. There's no other way to see that, partly because instead of us having a broad view of scripture, we have developed a narrow view, okay? So, so that's the first thing, that how we determine what, what he meant by according to the scriptures, whether we're trying to justify an existing theory. The second one is whether we are prepared to adopt a point of view, now listen to this, the, the words are important, that looks through and not back at the initiating events in Old Testament scripture. Okay. So we have to develop, if we're going to understand this, be prepared to adopt a point of view that looks through 
and not back at the initiating events in Old Testament scripture. In other words, we don't stand here with our theory and look back to see whether that supports it. What we do is we try and step back into this situation and look through the situation like we were Jews or Hebrews at the time looking through what we are experiencing to see what that reveals to us about the gospel. So when Paul says according to the scriptures, that's a little bit more fascinating sometimes than, um, than we think. Now, there's another couple of things I need to throw in here so that we can understand what we're about to, to read a little better. Okay, so... We're back on the whole thing of time again, okay? Because this, this is going to be important, time. So here's, here's how we have been taught and how we think of time, okay? So we have a beginning and an ending, right? That's called linear, okay? Linear. So... What you need to know is that this idea of time did not exist when the events that we're going to talk about happened. Nobody thought about time in those terms. This is a Greek idea. Okay? So in the Greek idea, we suddenly define time as a space that has a beginning and has an ending. So then we think of everything operating within the framework of a beginning and an ending. So you're born here, you're born here, and you die here. So we now have a problem because what about here, right? What do we have there before time? And what do we have here? So we finish up having to have on this line, at the end of this line, something to do. So that's where we have the, I'll just put a H. We come up with ideas of heaven. And hell, they're both H, aren't they? I'll put hell, hell. Because everything has to have a beginning and an end, and everything has to have a, have a consequence. So, so we think of time as linear. And we get stuck within that. Now, one of the dangers of linear time is that if you're on a linear timeline and the cross is here and you miss the cross, we can only conclude there's no hope because the cross was here and you went past it and you didn't see it, so you come here, so therefore you're lost because, you know, that was your moment of grace. That was your moment of salvation and you missed it. And then, of course, we get ideas about the will of God you know, the will of God here and the will of God here and the will of God here and we get phrases like, you missed the will of God because we're thinking linear. All this is on a straight line, so therefore we live along the line, so if I pass this without seeing it, I've missed it and if I pass this, I've missed that and if I pass the will, I've missed that. So everything becomes a process of pressure on life and of course then we develop things like condemnation and insecurity and fear. Um, you know, what if I miss the will of God? What if, I'm, what if I'm not saved? What if, what if, what if? And all of that thinking comes from, from linear thinking for which we, we can thank the Greeks. Um, but of course, when Paul's talking about 
the scriptures, the only scriptures that he has are the Hebrew scriptures which predate Greek thinking and are rooted in the Hebrew mind, not the Greek mind. So some of these things that we use, so penal substitutionary atonement works great on here. You were born, you sinned, uh, the fall, okay? You have to find your way to here, and if you don't find your way here, you pass go, you don't collect 200, you go direct to jail. It's all that kind of stuff. We, 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 we get this line on here, which supports an idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Somebody got to pay to help us. I'm not here to talk about the whole thing. I think Chris did a, a great job on that. But the issue is, according to the scriptures, doesn't work on this model. It works on the Hebrew model. So I'm saying this, if I show you this now, you'll be able to get some understanding of what I'm about to teach you from the scriptures that, that Paul was talking about. So, when we have a calendar, how do we do our calendar? We do it like, we'll do it like whichever way we do it, January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. Okay, now we might put that in a block, but basically that's how we do it. But you see, the Hebrew calendar doesn't work like that. The Hebrew calendar works like that. Because they never thought of time as linear. They thought of time as cyclical. So when you have cyclical time, the question is, where does it start and where does it end? So we already have a challenge to how we perceive what we're about to be told because it now no longer fits on this issue of beginning and end and therefore somewhere in there if I fail, I fall off the end into hell or if I succeed, I elevate the stairs into heaven. We have a whole different idea of how things work. So the Hebrews don't even really have a word for time, okay? And past, future, and present in Hebrew are, in essence, the same word. Because they are not bound in this idea of time. Now, of course, the other amazing thing about um, Hebrew time, which I'll repeat to you, because if you can grab it, it's so interesting. In the Hebrew mind, the past is in front of you, and the future is behind you. That's what the Hebrews believe. The past is in front of you and the future is behind you. Now, you think that's stupid. Actually, it's not. It's us that are stupid. Why did they think the past was in front of you and the future behind you? Because you can see the past, but you can't see the future. Therefore, the past must be in front of you because you can see it. And the future must be behind you because you can't see it. So, when you say to someone with a Greek mind, you must repent, it means a very different thing to saying to somebody with a Hebrew mind, you must repent. So to a Hebrew it means stop looking at the past 
and turn to the future, which is the new birth, because it was alien to their thinking, okay? So repentance was not turn from your sin, turn from your godless ways, you wicked person who's part of the fall. And it, was, it was stop letting the past define who you are, right? Because you repent to that which you cannot see. Now that's where then faith and belief comes in. Because we repent into that which we cannot see. And we have to trust that which is not visible to lead us in that which we cannot see. Okay? So that's the spirit they came with. Now, now God in his grace made himself visible from time to time. Right? So the word became flesh and lived among us, and we saw the glory of the Father. We touched him. He became physical for a time, but only to show us that actually in that unseen, he was always there, had always been there, and would always be there. But sometimes seeing him for all of us just helps the process along, which Paul would agree with, because that's how he finally said, I get it. Okay. So, so the Hebrew calendar is determined more by shape than dates. Um, so we're now going to talk about something that, that are called the feasts of Israel. The reason I want to talk about these is because, well, you see, you'll see as we talk about them why. Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So we have to say, what was he talking about? Now, if you're a penal substitutionary atonement person, you'll immediately think, oh, he's just talking about Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. That's part of it, but, but it's taken to some degree out of context. Um, because a Hebrew wouldn't think the same thing about the term salvation as you and I now think about it through, through Western Christianity. Okay? And, and that, again, the many things we could talk about there of how they perceived it. But um, I didn't want to draw it on here because it would just take me too long anyway, but I've got a picture of you, for you of a, of a... This is the Hebrew calendar. Now, I think it looks like something more occultic than anything. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that astrology uses a circular calendar? Which is nearer to the truth than this, right? That, 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 that has the perception that within that circle there are influences being brought to bear, which govern our journey in the circle. And um, I would personally think if, you know, if, if, there is a, if there is a power, if there is an ad adversary of some kind, um, I would start first by trying to replicate what was the truth. The nearer it is to the truth, the easier it is to pass off as, you know what I mean? As a forgery. So, I want to show you this because we're going to talk about the seven feasts of Israel. Now, forget Hanukkah because that, that is a late addition to the Jewish calendar that's got nothing to do with Scripture whatsoever. 
that happened in the period between um, the writing of the last book of the Old Testament and where we come into the New Testament. So it's in that Jewish history period in between there and to do with the temple and various things. So don't worry about Hanukkah, but I couldn't find a picture as good of this that didn't have Hanukkah on, so just ignore Hanukkah. We're not going to talk about that because that's not a Bible feast, okay? What we are going to talk about is these seven feasts that were introduced into Israel's thinking. Because most of what was introduced into their thinking in the terms of stuff that had pattern was there as a reason to show them a picture, to to give them an understanding, to, to demonstrate, to illustrate something that God was trying to get through to them. Now, they didn't always get it in the same way that, um, you know, thinking that the law was there to show you that you could keep it had missed the point. The law was only ever given to show you you've not got a chance. The sooner you appreciate you're not going to be able to keep this and you say, we can't keep this, the sooner we come to a revelation of truth. A bit like, you know, it's a speculative thought, but you should think these thoughts because they're good for you. What if Adam, after he and Eve had eaten from the tree, instead of making these fig leaf covers and hiding in the bushes, had stood there naked and said, you said not to. We thought we knew better. And we're really sorry. Great, wouldn't it? You wonder how that would have worked if we'd have done that. What the lesson would have been if we responded correctly. So, so lots of these things are illustrations of, of, of something important. And, and as you look at them, you can see how Paul could say what this meant. Okay. So, seven feasts of Israel. You find them in Leviticus chapter 23. I'm not going to read them. It would be a little bit laborious tonight. So I will just go through them and describe them. But if you want to read the feast, they're all seven summarized in Leviticus chapter 23. And um, it starts with Passover, this feast Passover. And uh, it starts on the 14th day of the first month. So, so it's the first month, it's the beginning. Now, now, the other thing you need to understand, you see how, you see how the inner circle uh, has our um, Gregorian calendar uh, mixed into there, which are all names of Greek and Roman gods. Um, the Jewish calendar and our calendar don't, don't tally, so there has to be correction, which is why certain dates like like Passover and what have you, they turn up at a different time in the year because they're on a different they're on a different um, <clears throat> different calendar. Um, but the first month you have this feast of Passover. Now we've talked some about Passover. Passover was the event that occurred that you begin to see unfold in Exodus chapter twelve where the children of Israel after, you know, and again we could talk the numbers here, depends how we're thinking, linear or cyclical. Because the other thing about cyclical thinking is, is, that, is that we think of time by ticks of the clock. 
where the Hebrew mind thought of time in terms of significance. So if it wasn't significance, it didn't matter. I, I like that. If it wasn't, so imagine dealing with your life, then instead of having this nonsense here that says, oh, God, all this going on behind me. If it wasn't significant, it didn't matter. So, so when you start adding up scriptures, it, seem, it seems to be in, inconsistent with certain historic details, or it will give you generations and you'll think, that's not right. You know, there's, there's people missing there. and Well, it's because they're not counting it by ticks of the clock in, in, in a straight line thing. They're counting it by significance. Who was significant? Here's the significant generations, so we'll just count what matters. I think, personally, God just counts what matters. Which is why David said he has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, but according to his loving kindness and tender mercy. Listen, for as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. In other words, using again the Hebrew mind, if you started walking east, you would never reach west. Because in the Hebrew mind, if you were going east, you were going east, you're 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 going east. You can only do west if you turned around and went the other way. West wasn't a place and east weren't a place. They were a direction. So as far as the east is from the west, is not, you know, as far as Europe is from America. It's like if you start going east you will never reach, in their cyclical view, west. So, so, so what he's really saying, David's saying, do you know what? <clears throat> A lot of stuff God just doesn't count. So he says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never count or credit his iniquities. What does he mean by that? He means there are some things that just don't count to God because he doesn't live in this line. On this line, everything matters. But living in here, there is a way that everything can be healed, okay? There is a process of healing going on all the time. On this, there isn't. Now, if we were to take this line here, right, the end, and the beginning, and get those lines and go, ooh, take them over and join them together, we could turn that into this. We could correct the errors in this, but whatever it remains in that way of thinking, we'll always be stuck in that condemnation process because we don't understand in that. Then we have to say, but, but how can God not count our iniquities if we're sinners? Well, somebody had to pay for our sin. And if the gods must be appeased because the gods are angry because there's an end that's going to bring the judgment, then, then, then the anger of the gods must be appeased. And how do we appease them? We appease them with a sacrifice. So, so as we start to move into this different measure of thinking, we, we, get, we get Passover. Interestingly enough, um, we started to make timepieces. And what shape are timepieces? I know you can put a square face on it, but what happens to the hands? See, to the Hebrews, 
That's why they don't have a word for time, because they don't understand really the concept. Now, I understand about being there on time, but that, that's a kind of an abstract concept to them. When they think of time, as far as they're concerned, it's really weird, which is why they struggle to have a word for it. Um, because, because time has always been, and time will always be, and time just goes on, just like your watch keeps going around. Okay? So, so, so there is a process in here that if we understand it, we might understand how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. Not the scriptures we think were the scriptures, but the scriptures that Paul's actually referring to, of which this is part. So Exodus 12, we have the, you know, the children of Israel were in, in deep Gaga, slaves in, a, in the land of Egypt, and, uh, and it was time for them to be delivered, and God had a way to deliver them. I'm really shortening the story, and of course there's the plagues of Egypt and all that. And then we get the last, um, the last plague, which was the plague of death. And um, Moses comes and says, God spoke to me, and God said this. He said, if you'll take a lamb for a household, or if the household's too small, bring some households together under the same roof and take a lamb. And you take the lamb and you take the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb, you take the blood of the lamb, you put it on the, on the, the lintel and the doorposts of the house. And then when death comes through uh, and sees that blood, it will pass over you. Hence why it's called pass, what shall we call it? Why don't we call it Passover? Well, Passover... You. Now, here's the problem. Flip. If you're thinking this, you start interpreting that as a support of penal substitutionary atonement. But there is a huge question about the Passover lamb being sacrificed, and that is this, where in all the scriptures surrounding it and after it, is there ever any mention that this was a sacrifice for sin? Now you can say, well, yeah, but it says in the New Testament, Hebrews, Christ our Passover lamb. Yes, but you're reading into it something. Well, John said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, but you're now reading into that process. Remember, Paul was not denying he died for our sins according to the scriptures, but how that was being accomplished and what was the means is what Paul is now trying to get us to to understand. So, so in the Passover sacrifice, there is zero mention of that animal being sacrificed for sin. Now, I would propose to you something I've said to you before, and I will keep repeating it to you. That one of the most important understood principles in the life of that culture and in the history of Israel was the principle of covenant. In a covenant, you became a beneficiary of something that the other person had. And the way that you made sure that that was known how serious you were was to sacrifice. Now, I appreciate we wouldn't do that now, but we're a different culture. Culturally then, the way to show covenant was blood. Blood was the mark of covenant. So I propose to you that that Passover lamb was never about cleansing anybody from their sins, 
But what it was about was showing everybody that they had become beneficiaries of a covenant. God was saying, here is a covenant, and I want you to understand that the blood of that covenant has made a promise to you that you will be free from what? Sin. No. You'll be free from slavery, and you'll be free from what? What was the key consequence? Death. So, so now we've, we've already moved in our understanding of the gospel that when we look at the Passover, we see that actually the enemy to be defeated was death and the circumstance from which we needed delivering was slavery. Now I propose to you, when we understand that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that the problem is not sin. The problem is death. Hence the reason why, we're going to see in a little moment, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death. Because death was the consequence of sin. Sin was just sin. Death was the consequence, right? When you sin, when the day you eat of the tree, you will die. You become cut off from the source of life and therefore you begin to perish and and die, therefore what we need is an answer to death. If we have an answer to death, we already have the answer to sin. So if you live in the power of resurrection, you live with power over sin. So I'm gonna show you how this model keeps developing, okay? So, so that, that's, that's a, a very brief, short summary of Passover, which again becomes one of the main proponents of what people will use, because everywhere they see an animal dying, they're all saying, yeah, that's because, you know, the gods need to be appeased. But it was defeating death through the power of covenant of which those people became beneficiaries. Okay, so let's not say any, any more about that. But let's make a couple of comments about it. Passover was instituted before the law. Okay, so I need to get a little bit biblically technical now. So what happened at Passover was never meant to be a solution for what happened when we broke the law. So it had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with fixing law-breaking. Because the law hadn't been given yet. This is before the law. So it's nothing to do with sin, and it's nothing to do with the law. It's to do with covenant which will empower us not to be enslaved by the law, which is why Paul uses the term slavery so often when he's talking about the law. Don't be a slave to that. Because that will remind you of everything that we're not living in here. When in here, we come to a place where it doesn't count. So, so if Passover was before the law, therefore, what afterwards becomes attached to it must flow from the pure perspective of Passover, which this theory around here doesn't, okay? So remember what I said, that, that we have to be prepared to adopt a point of view that looks through. So we've gone back and we're looking, we're looking forward now through the Passover sacrifice. We're not saying we believe this and think that, but we're going to look back, oh, that supports what we think. We're looking through Passover and saying, wait a minute, this is telling us something else. So, Passover, 14th day of the first month. 
15th day of the first month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is about to run for seven days, which is baking bread without yeast or leaven, if you like the old language. Um, yeast is a, is a biological bacterial agent that uh, ferments and infects. So, we've first got an image here that Whatever is going on here is free from infection, right? So, so he's trying to tell him, okay, how can I get this through to you? Go through your house and, and find anything that might have, might have the yeast bacteria in it. Get rid of it from your house. Everything. Clean, go through your house. Clear out everything that might have yeast in it. Because whatever is happening at Passover is also expressing to us that this is not corrupted by anything that has gone before. This is a, a pure, uncorrupted message. It's now, it's without yeast. It, it, it's, it's without leaven. Now, of course, on that beginning day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when you did all that, um, you basically, you baked the bread and you produced the bread without yeast. Now how fascinating that this whole process was presenting to us in its initial context a bread without yeast. I am the bread of life. He was tempted in all points, yet without sin. So, so we, have, we have Jesus as a representation of the unleavened bread. There's, there's, no, there's nothing corrupt in him. Now, there is a different kind of leaven in him which Chris talked about, which is the leaven of the kingdom, the yeast of the kingdom, that has the same effect. Everybody talks about, oh, the yeast of sin. But Jesus talked about the yeast of the kingdom. He says, you catch this, it'll have the same effect. The kingdom will corrupt everything. So, so we've now got the unleavened bread. And it's baked and it's prepared to eat. And then, the day after that, we have first fruits, which we just talked about. Incidentally, thank you, you guys were amazing in money and pledges. We already took over 17,000 pounds as a first fruit to that which we have not yet seen. So thank you. I'm telling you that telling you that because you're here before them come on Saturday. You get special information. So, first fruits was all about the, the it was the beginning of the, the harvest and, and they bring the first sheaves of barley from the field are brought to the priest and then he goes into the temple or the, or the synagogue and he goes, or, or, or the tabernacle as it would be in the wilderness, Moses' tent in the wilderness, and he would wave that before the Lord. And he was saying... This first fruits, this, this first part of our harvest, this, this that's showing through, that's not yet fully manifesting what it is to, be, to become, we are, we are giving it to you. We are so that, he said, and God will bless that that is offered to him as a first fruit, okay? Okay, so, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and buried rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, now let, let's, let's, looking through those feasts, 
When did Jesus die? What, what day did Jesus die on? Passover. Do you think that might have some significance? Do you think that might be somehow really important in how we interpret what happened at the crucifixion? So, if at Passover, the blood of that sacrifice was not about primarily the sins of Israel, what primarily was the blood of Jesus about? Not sins. It was primarily about a covenant of which we would bear beneficiary, which would break the power of death, of which the overcoming of sin would be a consequence, not the purpose of it, but a consequence in our lives of it, would be that we are freed from the power of sin and, of course, judgment, all that stuff that, that, that goes with it. So, so Jesus doesn't die on this other, other day, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is atonement. So that's a very different thing, and that's part of the law. He dies at Passover. So, so if we look through Passover, we have to say that what Jesus did has to be viewed in the same way that Passover was viewed and the benefits of that were the benefits that he brings to us. So, so freeing us from slavery and freeing us from the power of death. Now, what's interesting then, of course, we get, he, he dies on the Passover day, the Friday. Saturday is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When the purged dough mixture is being baked in the oven to produce the bread that will initially be what feeds the people in this process of understanding the Passover. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Okay? So here's, the, here's the, the, the unleavened bread now. Let's call it in the baking process. And then we get to the third day, which is resurrection, the first day of the week. Right, So the Sabbath is the unleavened bread. We're now on the Sunday, the first day of the week. And as the priest is waving the first fruit offerings in the tabernacle, in the synagogue, in the temple, Jesus is rising from the dead. Why is he rising from the dead? To represent a first fruits of that which is not yet seen, but will come about because of his offering. So the idea of first fruits was the harvest will be incredibly blessed when the first fruits are offered to God. And so I propose to you that when Jesus the first fruits was offered to God on that resurrection morning, it was inevitable that the harvest would be incredibly blessed. Not some small, piddling little, you know, well, just a remnant of people if we can get a few people to find Jesus and... I'm talking about something that, that, that globally and historically has a massive impact because the work that is accomplished is so powerful that it affects everything. Now, it doesn't affect this. It affects this. So we've now got something introduced, not linear, but cyclical. In other words, it's going to come around and come around 
and come around and come around. So here's where this wrong theory works. It says, we've got Jesus here and that was it. And if you miss that, you're going to hell forever. Here, we've got, we celebrate Passover. And we come back to Passover. And we come back to Passover. And we come back to Passover. It's inevitable, because of the way this is structured, that we keep coming back to a revelation of Passover unleavened bread and first fruits. We can't avoid it because it's cyclical. Keep coming back. It keeps coming back. So we get chance to see it, meet it, embrace it, live in it, accept it, experience that covenant over and over and over and over again. So that's the first. So Christ died for our sins according to these scriptures, right? So we've got to look through that and interpret other stuff of which there are stuff has to be interpreted, but we interpret it through that because this is the first month. This is the first thing. This is before the law. This is God screaming out saying whatever the law is, it's not about dealing with your sin. And therefore, whatever the law is, the law is not the final voice on your condition. So, then we have 49 days. We have seven, seven Sabbaths, seven Saturdays, seven weeks from the unleavened bread, that Sabbath. Seven, seven Sabbaths, seven weeks, 49 days, Plus one. So we now find ourselves on what to us would be a Sunday, uh, 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and this, this first part of the feast. And it's called the Feast of Weeks for that reason, because it's, it's basically seven weeks. We, we know it now as the Feast of Pentecost. Um, which followed on after this process. And of course, if you were going to look at, you know, what happened with Jesus, died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, he wants you to understand unleavened bread, and, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, wants you to understand first fruits, right? Um, that then as we count this over and we come on to, to Pentecost, we, we then find something very interesting happens because um, at Pentecost, we, we take now the grains from the harvest, and I, I like to think, uh, there are some that would agree, there are some would argue not, but I'd, I like to think that those grains from the first fruit waving have made their way down through here and are now ground into fine flour, okay? So it's no, longer, it's no longer now grain, it's been ground into, it's very specific, the Hebrew, ground into fine flour. So it's been totally broken down, but then what happens is really strange because after all that shenanigans about, about yeast and, uh, and uh, you know, getting it out of your houses, uh, now he says, I want you to bake two loaves and I want you to bake them with yeast. Yes. Yes. Awesome. 
Now, what's fascinating is that uh, if, if you really break down what was happening in that early church from Christ's death, goes into the tomb, he raises on the third day, and that first Pentecost really was, he, it was, it was the beginning of what we know as the church, the ecclesia. It was the beginning of the thing that, that Jesus said, I'm going to build something, and, and, and everything in the culture won't be able to, to stand against it. The gates of Hades won't stand against it. Um, and and this, is where, this is where we are now. So on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls is part of the whole process and uh, and really the church is born because Jesus said don't leave Jerusalem wait till you get power from on high and when that happened uh, what we know as the church you know with all its various conversations we could have about that but not for today um, is born but as that is happening the priest now is no longer waving these grains of first fruits he's now in, in his understanding before the presence of the Lord and he's waving these two loaves that have now, it's the pure flower, right? It's the pure essence of the first fruit now ground down in a way that it is mixed with something else, an agent that has corruption in it. But when the corruption and the pure come together and they are baked together, they produce what's life to the world. It's bread, right? It's bread. And we now have bread, two loaves. Some would say that's because there was, you know, redemption for, for those who had come through the Jewish process and there's also redemption for those who've come through the non-Jewish Gentile process. Um, and now it becomes really one bread because it's not two different types of bread. It's the same bread that now may be two loaves. And what's interesting is there was still a distinction for a long time between the, the Jewish church and the emerging Gentile church. It may be two loaves, but it looks the same, feels the same, smells the same, tastes the same, because in essence, it's the same thing. But the miracle of it is now is that the corruption that that flour is mixed with doesn't ruin the bread, it makes the bread. So we don't ruin what Christ has done. We make what Christ has done because when we are mixed with what Christ did in these first three things, we become bread to the world. Edible. It was interesting that when this feast was spoken about, um, they were also told to leave Leave the edges of the fields. When you, when you gather in the harvest, leave the edges of the fields. In other words, don't tidy up so much that you deny participation of the poor and the alien. And I think one of the great errors of, of the modern Western church is tidying up. Yeah. We want to dot every I, cross every T. We want to have our boundaries clearly marked. We don't want to leave some stuff that's just there for people to pick on and take. Partly because sometimes we don't want them to enjoy what we think we so hard worked for and struggled for. And yet, and yet this is proposing a soft gospel, not a hard gospel. Which is the same as a soft Brexit versus a hard Brexit. Okay? <laughs> soft gospel as opposed to a hard gospel. 
It's a soft gospel. So it says, yeah, there are some things that, that some of us have embraced and understood, but there are some things that some hasn't, but there's still food for them. There's still provision for them. They can still get in at the edges and enjoy provision. They could get more. It could be better, but there's something for everybody. And the problem is when we start living this model, we draw such a severe line that you're either in or you're out. You've got it or you haven't got it. And he said, some of you have got more of it. But what you've got is more of it. You haven't got it. You've just got more of it. But in those soft edges, let people feed off the soft edges. Don't drive them away. You don't put a scarecrow up, you know, a Christian scarecrow, a cross with a scarecrow on. Stay out, you wicked people. You No. He says, you've got to leave something in this around the edges. So, so I'm, I'm for a soft gospel. I was raised with a hard gospel because I was thinking linear. But in here, it's a soft gospel, which I like better. Um, so let me, let me get on with this so we, we get through. We then move on to the seventh month. Now, of course, you know, first month, then we've got kind of this thing somewhere near the middle in the first part of it and then we've got the seventh month now of course seven in the bible is always a significant number you know on the seventh day god rested seven in in what's known as numerology in scripture always speaks of completeness and finishedness the finished work so it's hardly surprising that in the illustration the picture okay the, the, the gospel that, that, that how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, we buried and rose again according to the scriptures, we've got this imagery that's going on. So when we hit the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, we start off the seventh month on the first day with what's called the Feast of Trumpets. Now, what's interesting is that when this was spoken to Israel in, you know, in the days of the Levitical writing or whenever it was spoken, uh, this feast actually uh, did, was not linked to any historic event. So it's not like we blow the trumpets because that happened. So what we've got is a, is a declaration not influenced by past models, okay? Because it's not linked to any past event. It's like in that month, which signifies a finished place, I want you to start it out by blowing a trumpet. Make a noise. Um, make an announcement. So, so we now, according to the gospel, we hit a seventh month, there's an announcement to be made. Um, I also like, there's a real big emphasis in these last three faiths on, and, and I don't want any work. Nobody, do not work. No work. Now you think, well, why was that so important? Not because of what you think of through this other model, but what you think of through the model of you don't have to work for this because what was done here in month one, right, means no more work is required, but you're obsessed with thinking you now have to work. So it moves from trumpets in the 10th day, which is in the middle, because this feast is going to go on the, from the first 21 days. So in the middle... We've got, we've got the, the interesting, uh, the Feast of Atonement. 
Now, atonement is a word that, that means really to cover. Um, to, and, and, and atonement was first introduced to the children of Israel when the law had been introduced. And in the law, as a lawbreaker, you needed to understand if you're going to live in law, there is always a penalty in law. And the penalty in law was always, will always be death. And, uh, and so even if you have something to atone for your sins, it will never be enough because when you sin again, you have to come back because it doesn't fix anything, okay? The nice thing is about Passover is Passover fixes things because you were in Egypt and now you're not. That doesn't mean there's no issues to face, but you were in Egypt, now you're not. Atonement fixes nothing. It just puts something off. The problem is the church, because of its linear thinking and, and penal atonement, oh, the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, um, therefore you appease the gods with sacrifice. Ah, atonement, perfect. Yeah, they sinned, somebody's got to pay. Instead of them paying, the lamb pays, the goat pays, that gets sacrificed. Yeah, so that's the gospel. No, because what you've done is look back from here. Instead of looking through these feasts and saying, hang on a minute. It doesn't mean that because here's the problem. Atonement is only coming in the seventh month. Right? If atonement was what the gospel was all about, covering your sin, it would have happened in the first month to say the most important thing is that your sins be atoned for because Christ is your atonement, but it didn't. It comes after we have been freed from slavery, after we have taken of the unleavened bread, after the first fruits has emerged on our behalf, after we have been integrated into the loaf which becomes the bread and the church. So what it's really saying, if you believe in atonement, is that you only get saved after all that stuff's happened. You can't have it always. But you see, atonement is removed because it's got nothing to do with establishing your relationship with God. Nothing. So what was it all about then? Well, it was about, it was about showing us that when we are already in, everything's covered. It wasn't everything must be covered for you to get into the cycle. It's when you're in the cycle, you just need to know that Christ, our sacrifice, has already covered everything. So if we sin, Paul says in another part, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, we might still have a problem with this thing called sin afterwards, but God's not counting it against us, and we need to understand in that struggle, we have an atonement. It's covered. Got you covered. So this does not support the penal substitutionary atonement theory. It actually blows it out of the water and says, if you look through these feasts, you cannot believe 
in a penal substitutionary atonement theory, which means you have to drop the idea that God is angry and God must be appeased, and that therefore there has to be a, a, a ritual child sacrifice so that he's not mad at everybody. So this line disappears and we start to live in here. Now following that, oh, let me read you this because this is great, okay. Um, so atonement is granted through Christ with us playing no part, but I'll, I'll just read you these verses from, uh, uh, from uh, Leviticus 23. This, this is about the, the atonement. Verse 30, I will destroy from among you, I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on that day you shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generation to come wherever you live. It is a Sabbath rest of rest for you. And you must deny yourself, that means you must deny yourself the right to think that you can work. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. The strength of atonement is not in what a terrible sinner you are. The strength of atonement is you dare try and work for this and you will come under a curse. So don't work. Understand this is a provision, not a requirement. Did you get that? This is a provision, not a requirement. It's a provision, not a requirement. Don't work. Live in it because the power is flowing from Passover. Okay? Then the last feast there, 15th day for seven days. So it finishes the 21st day of the seventh month, which in numerology is three times seven, which is like the, the completeness of the Godhead times, and you know, all that stuff, very interesting. Um, in tabernacles, you eat from the harvest with joy. So we've now got the harvest that's come because of the first fruits and everything's covered. You eat from the harvest with joy, and you live in tents and booths. So if you're going to celebrate this, you've got to get yourself down to go outdoors, buy yourself a tent and get out in the garden for seven days. Uh, why was that? Because they had to remember this vital element of the journey to possess an inheritance, to reach the land of promise, to journey out of death and into life. What was the importance? The importance was I brought you out of slavery not to build a jolly temple and get yourself stuck in religion. I brought you out to live in tents. Yes. Not in tents, in tents. I want you to celebrate every time. This was, the, the, this was what you needed to do to make the journey to wholeness. You had to live in tents, which meant you had to be on a journey and you were a pilgrim, and you never stopped being a pilgrim on a journey, living in tents. But the problem is, we want to build something solid. But he said every year, remember, the process was Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then the Pentecost coming through trumpets, Day of Atonement, and then Tabernacles, so that you know you, I freed you to live in tents. Lovely. I freed you so you'd be on a journey. Now, one last thought and a comment. When you look at this um, Hebrew calendar, um, 
I, I used to teach this, and, and there are many people still think that the prophetic nature of this is that, well, you know, Christ did die on Passover day, and he did, you know, he was in the tomb on leavened bread. He rose from the dead on, on, uh, on uh, first fruits. And uh, the day of Pentecost came when the church was born and the leaven was mixed with the fine flour and we have bread for the world. And therefore, trumpets is the end. Okay? The, the trumpet will sound. So, so we then get our interpretation because we have to have an end because we live on this line. We've got to have an end. It'll be trumpets. Uh, and then they go into all shenanigans about stuff that's happening that then we need, you know, the atonement. And it's like, you, well, you're, just, you're using double metaphors there because you said it happened there and now you've got it happening. You know, so even if you believe that, you can't have atonement at the cross and atonement here. It's one or the other, which is it going to be? Uh, and that tabernacles is then when we all go to heaven to be with Jesus. Here's my problem with that. That's the seventh month, but we have the eighth month, the ninth month, the tenth month, the eleventh month, the twelfth month, that bring us back to the first month. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the end of time because they were not thinking in terms of the end of time. It's got everything to do with preparing us for a time of joy and we live and all the time then we come back through Passover and we come back through, we come back through unleavened bread and, and first fruits and Passover and trumpets and atonement and tabernacles, and we come back through to Passover. And, and we, so, we, so we begin to live in a cycle that is all the time full of life, right? It's a life cycle. So here's my proposition, having said all that. I propose this is not a timeline toward a linear end, because the Hebrews still had five months to live on from tabernacles. But it's a cycle of salvation, redemption, restoration, and hope. Of life from the dead in this dimension or the other. So this doesn't take away from those of us who are getting a few years on us and there will come a point that we will live in another dimension that's not this dimension. It doesn't take away that hope because that dimension is still within here. It's just the unseen part of this that we enter into where Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and Pentecost and trumpets and atonement and tabernacles are still our inheritance. So shall we ever be with the Lord. We're not so much walking on a line, the word on, hoping not to miss defined points that would save us, so much as we are in a glorious cycle where salvation, redemption, restoration and hope are ever present and active. We're trying to get you from living on the line to living in the cycle. Because on the line... Redemption, restoration, hope, salvation are points. But in the, this glorious circle, they are ever-present and ever-active. Ever-present, ever-active. In your life, in my life, living in this understanding rather than this understanding. So I think I've said enough. So...
Lots more we could say, obviously. Doesn't answer every question that was ever there. We've wrestled what these things. But I want to bring you back to the beginning. So when Paul says, right, that, that, that um, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, I propose to you that he's looking through. He's looking through the things that we've talked about. And because he was looking through those, his understanding of the gospel was immense. It was great. It was welcoming to all. And uh, the questions that surround that you can wrestle with. We'll try and answer them again. If you've got questions, write them down. We'll try and deal with them. Um, But other than that, uh, be blessed and live in the salvation, redemption, restoration, and hope that is part of being in this cycle that is the life that comes from God that Hebrews knew and we've forgotten, but we're remembering. Amen? All right, good, we're done. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.